Welcome to this Voice of Insurance COVID-19 special episode in association with Specialist Risk Group. I'm Mark Gagan. This first in a series of special COVID-19 episodes brings together a trio of very senior UK and Ireland broking CEOs. Brendan McManus of PIB Insurance Brokers, Peter Blanc of Aston Lark and Warren Downey of our host Specialist Risk Group, SRG, joined on a web call to discuss the insurance industry's response to the COVID-19 crisis. We spoke just ahead of the Easter long weekend, amid turmoil for the insurance sector in the UK and major global markets. Bowing to Bank of England pressure to conserve capital and bolster solvency margins, UK insurers Aviva, RSA, Direct Line and Hiscox all announced the scrapping of plans to pay their final 2019 dividends to shareholders. The news was followed after Easter by QBE, which unveiled an 825 million US dollar rights issue to form a capital buffer. This led insurance publication The Insurer to ask whether the Australian headquartered global insurance group was the canary in the insurance coal mine and the first of many such capital raises. The insurer also broke the news that the UK insurer trade body, the ABI, was getting on the front foot in the public relations battle over COVID-19 by looking to set up a charitable fund amidst growing criticism of the UK insurance industry's response to the crisis. Meanwhile, coverage disputes arising from business interruption following COVID-19 moved on to the front pages, with Hiscox specifically being in the firing line, as reports circulated of clients forming an action group to fight its interpretation of cover under a commercial insurance wording. That story was first broken by the Insurance Insider, which also carried an exclusive interview with Lloyd CEO John Neal. Neil was confident that the COVID-19 crisis would be an earnings event, but not a capital event for the Lime Street market. However, he told the Insurance Insider that whilst the current loss estimate made the event comparable to a small US landfalling hurricane, with likely industry-insured losses in the single-digit billions, the longer the loss went on, the more likely it was to become comparable in size to the hurricanes Harvey, Irma and Maria losses of 2017. According to a 2018 Swiss Re estimate, that those three storms produced record insured losses of 92 billion US dollars and pushed the Lloyds market and most international specialty insurers and reinsurers to major losses. In the US, so often a harbinger of things to come on this side of the Atlantic, President Donald Trump weighed into the BI debate, demanding insurers pay COVID-19 losses where fair. This prompted a reaction from seven senators who wrote to the president defending the industry and the sanctity of its contracts against any retroactive measures. Meanwhile, seven states were reported to have tabled punitive prospective legislation around the issue. California added fuel to the fire as its insurance commissioner, Ricardo Lara, ordered insurers return premiums across at least six lines of property and casualty business because the major reduction in economic activity from COVID-19 had significantly reduced exposure. The move soured actions by Allstate and other major US primary carriers that had already made voluntary return premium announcements along similar lines. All the news I've just mentioned formed the backdrop to our memorable debate, where our highly experienced trio of broker CEOs rated the sector's own operational response to the crisis and discussed the UK leadership's public relations performance, political risks and the insurability of pandemics themselves. The executives also assessed the performance and financial strength of insurance carriers, the resilience of intermediaries exposed to premium finance credit risk, and how the hit to capital markets might affect debt and consequently the world of broker M&A. There was plenty of insight and no small amount of disagreement. 
This first SRG Voice of Insurance COVID-19 special episode comes highly recommended. Before the podcast starts, I'm on the line with Warren Downey, the CEO of Specialist Risk Group, also known as SRG. First of all, thanks so much for supporting this initiative, Warren. I think it's very market spirit of you. Before we get going, I just want to ask why you've done this and to tell us what SRG is all about. Thanks, Mark. We uh, have seen huge amounts of uh, news and information flowing around in the current crisis. And we at Specialist Risk Group felt that it would be really helpful to all of our trading partners of the industry at large to have someone provide a regular synopsis of all of the uh, news and statements made by various interested parties uh, as it concerns our industry. And also to do it much closer to the ground, uh, a little bit less high level in macroeconomics and a little bit closer to where we are uh, supporting our clients. So we felt that there was no better way of doing it than uh, with you helping us through this, Mark. So we appreciate that. Specialist Risk Group um, has its foundations in the acquisitions of Miles Smith and the Underwriting Exchange. Both businesses are known for doing difficult things well, difficult industries, difficult geographies, um, often where there are very limited solutions. And as a specialist player, uh, we felt that um, as we build out our own group, uh, we wanted to provide this um, wider service um, to the industry. Well, thanks so much, Warren. I'm very much looking forward to the podcast. Thanks very much, Brendan, Warren, and Peter, for taking the time doing what must be a very busy time for you right now. I think we should start with a report card of ourselves and how we're getting along operationally. How's it, how's it going? You know, we're a couple of weeks into what has been a really big enforced change upon all of your, in, your natural way of doing business. How's it been, Peter, perhaps? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's quite funny. After spending however many years being told by IT that everything's impossible and it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds and take two years to implement, then all of a sudden within a week, we've got 900 staff working from home, soft telephony, IT, resilient, WebEx teams, video conferences, conference calls, and it's working, astonishingly. I mean, thank goodness this lockdown didn't happen five years ago, is all I can think. It's actually working incredibly well. And Warren? Yeah, I think similar similar story. Our head of IT has got a, a military background and it's sort of he's gone into commando mode and uh, we are alarmingly well set up in the circumstances and um, it makes you feel more for those companies that are a bit smaller, have a bit less infrastructure and, and how difficult it must be to ramp up. We were about 40 laptop shorts of a complete home working environment and, and our team were out on the streets of London with bags of money buying up laptops in the in the final couple of days before we all went remote so you know I, I just you know it makes you feel for those guys that didn't have that flexibility or that kind of commando attitude to IT in a crisis. And Brendan how's it, how's it been for you guys? It's been surprisingly easy um, we, we've got 1300 people working at the moment including the call centres I managed to buy 300 laptops we, uh, we got two guys in white vans driving around the country configuring them and dropping them off with people and and it's worked surprisingly well to the point now where the big debate on our internet is with people discussing what the new normal is going to be like and how flexible can we be in the future. And when we do go back to work, are we going to go back to work, you know, still maintaining social distancing for a long period of time? And um, uh, how can we do that? How able are we to do that? And actually, we're very able to do it. So and nearly everybody I've spoken to in the, in the sector has coped with it pretty well. How's 100% electronic placing going for all of you? Mother, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Um, all, of, all the barriers drop away. People become flexible, nimble. And I think 
it just proves the point that a lot of the resistance to modernization and change comes from familiarity and comfort. And when you take away the ability to be familiar and comfortable, people adapt and we're not experiencing the, the disruptions in our businesses are actually not our platforms, our placement or our processes. They're what's happening in the wider world. Obviously, uh, you know, we've uh, the technical side of things is one thing, but people are people, and particularly people who work at uh, insurance brokers and in, in, in intermediaries are, are very sociable people, love face-to-face, love uh, interacting with other people. How are you supporting your people and, and giving them that kind of social feel uh, at, at this time and so supporting their well-being, uh, mental well-being? We're doing loads of that. We've got, at four o'clock this afternoon, we've got an all-staff social happening. Uh, um, so basically, in the run-up to Bank Holiday weekend, um, I think we've got 25 different Zoom meetings going on all around the country with different divisions. So claims have got, they've formed their own virtual pub. Um, we've got quizzes going on. One of our members of staff in Farnborough is doing a concert on Facebook. Um, so we've got all sorts of stuff going on. And we're having daily video conferences with all of the, uh, the management team. So the management team are having daily video conferences with their staff. We're sending out loads of things on the, um, on mental health and wellness. So the, we've got a few fun things going on as well around the looky likey competitions and uh, best work. We've got a through the keyhole thing starting off. So people are going to be encouraged to send uh, send walkthroughs of their houses, and then people have to guess whose house it is. I'm um, taking notes, yeah. Peter. I'm taking notes. I think we can like, steal some of this. There we go. So there's, there's, a, there's a load of stuff going on. It's actually been, um, it's been to, to an extent that some of my more cynical, um, I've, got, I've got a lovely guy that works for me in Birmingham, but he's cynical old school. And he, uh, um, and, and he said, will you please stop? We've just had enough. Stop with all the videos. Stop with all the niceness. It's just making me a bit sick. And Brendan, you got anything to add there? Anything that you guys are, are doing? No, we're, we're doing lots of those things. I think we're lucky that anybody younger than me is more used to social networking than, than ever I am. And uh, a lot of this stuff was going on in the background anyway. And we've got all the usual things, lots of videos through people's houses, snooping in people's houses, we're calling it. And uh, we've got a toilet roll keep you up challenge that's going on and various other things. And actually, I think it all helps just to have a bit of fun. And um, what I found is that people have got more time to talk to each other. And that's helping because it's improving the level of collaboration and cooperation between different businesses, particularly in a buy and build like ours. And um, I, I dare say it's actually been pretty positive so far. We haven't found any negatives in it. Yeah, I mean, um, I passed this over to, to, to Warren and Peter. Someone I spoke to the other day was saying, actually, oddly enough, um, because we're not traveling so much, this is someone who's working in a global environment, uh, because we're not traveling as much, we can get decisions done uh, much quicker, oddly enough. I mean, is anyone else experiencing that sort of paradox? Peter? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I think we are, we're feeling that perhaps we're, we're learning in some ways to be better line managers because... We, we're for if you know people that have been leading teams that we all have for a long time now are, are constantly reminding people who are in charge of people to have structured, regular catch-ups with meaningful you know decisions and outcomes. And actually, in many ways, Zoom and things like Zoom make that necessary because it's in the diary. It happens. You dial up. You look at each other, and you have the conversation. So I think a number of our colleagues are experiencing line management in a whole new light uh, and a positive one. Same, same for you, Peter. Yeah, I mean, I found that we commented within the first week of this lockdown starting that I reckon I spoke to all of our divisional leaders more in that first week than I had done in the previous in the previous two months, which is you know shame on me for um, for, for how I behaved before. Before, but it's you know, the levels of communication in the organisation are just miles better now than they were before, which is bizarre. You know, we're all working together in London and not talking to each other. 
and probably the last one before I move on, you, you mentioned about a lot of these sort of things that have happened within your organizations, you know, key fun things and, and social things that have happened in, in your organization. Have you noticed, has it changed the hierarchical structure of your organizations that you find a lot of these initiatives are just coming organically from the people? Yeah, I found a few people have stepped up. So some, some unlike, yeah, some, there, there are, I think as Brendan said, there are people in a different age demographic from us lot um, who are just far more comfortable with all this. And, they, and they're the ones who've stepped up and said, well, how about this? How about that? And, that, and we've, we've tried, to be, uh, um, tried to allow as much of it to happen as possible. Good. Well, I think we can give ourselves a reasonably good report card on our kind of our own, uh, our own physical and operational performance. What about the industry as a whole now in terms of our be- things that we're doing as an industry? For a start, I'd like to ask Brendan, perhaps, are we communicating effectively as an industry? We're under intense scrutiny from all sides of the media. And, you know, are our trade bodies and our leaders, our industry leaders, appointed ones, are they stepping up effectively, do you think, Brendan? Uh, no, but that's fairly, been fairly consistent for a long period of time. And I think that's the, that's the reality of having quite diverse interests. In, in what you refer to as the industry, there are, there are many different uh, factors and many different voices. And I think present a very confusing face to Westminster and also to the general public because we have the ABI, we've got BIBA, LIBA, the MGAA, and I could keep on reeling them off. And they've all got fairly different interests. So we, we don't have a single view of the insurance sector being given either to government or the general public. And... Um, you can see in the early days uh, where the government were kind of trying to slide the blame a little bit into the insurance sector, the insurance sector pushed back. And then I think my, my own experience in the last few weeks have been that the various insurance providers have reacted in wildly different ways. It is a story of the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, I'm afraid. And whilst it probably wasn't the intention of insurance providers to provide cover for a global pandemic, in some cases, because their wordings are fairly loose and ambiguous, they are going to end up picking up some claims. And in identical circumstances, you see carriers responding in wildly different ways. And uh, I think it's going to run and run for some time. And, it's, and the sector is not going to look good as a consequence of it. Warren, you've got anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wholeheartedly echo that. I think we are, um, we're seeing the real heroes be few and far between. And there's quite a lot of sort of reasonably poor behavior in communication and i think it's it will last a long time it doesn't reflect well on the industry and it actually clouds over some of the pretty good initiatives that the smarter and more accommodating um, players you know there are people that have gone very front-footed on non-contentious extensions unoccupied properties there's people doing the right thing um, across the board but the pr the communication the coordination of that communication is you know bordering on horrific i'd say Peter, do you think this is just because it's a crisis, you always, it always becomes a point of differentiation? It's always in a crisis when you find out who's, who's good and who's bad. In fact, that was the old uh, commercial union uh, slogan, wasn't it, back in the 70s yeah. and 80s? You know, so we won't make a drama out of a crisis. Is it just a point of differentiation that it's pretty obvious when you put something under stress, you find out what the good, who the good organizations and who the good insurers are? And, uh, and the ones that are genuinely empowered and know what they're, what they're doing and those that you don't? That, would you agree with that, Peter? Yeah, to, to a degree. I mean, I think this, unfortunately, this does go beyond what would anyone would call a normal crisis. You know, a crisis might be Tewkesbury being underwater, you know, or, a, um, or, or a, you know, an entire town in Yorkshire suffering a disastrous flood. And, you know, that, that's kind of a crisis that insurance is designed to respond to. I don't think anyone ever modelled a crisis where 100% of your customers want to claim 100% of their BI policy at the same time. 
And I think that the government did everyone a massive disservice by coming out and trying to make out that insurance would somehow be able to mythically come up with however many hundred trillion pounds to pay for a, you know, a global pandemic, which is clearly never, ever going to be the case. So there was a bit of misinformation to start with. And of course, there's never been a real education program where no one's ever come out just with a simple infographic to say, well, you know what, actually, these would be the total losses. And this is how insurance works. And this is, this is beyond insurance. And if people have come out with that early doors and explained just what the insurance is for most crises, but when you get to nuclear war or global pandemic, it kind of insurance doesn't work at that point because it's just not capitalized to deal with it. And I think a, a clear explanation along those lines, early doors would have been really helpful. Instead, it's been the usual horrible insurance thing of raising expectations and then dashing them. Brendan, would you agree with that? I mean, I was planning on talking about the kind of really big picture stuff about how insurable pandemic is and how we might want to address that in the future, obviously, if and when we get through this crisis. How insurable is pandemic, do you think? Do you think it's a, such a systemic risk that we'll never be able to insure it? I, yeah, I agree. I just, I just don't think it is insurable. I don't think any, any insurance provider intended to cover it. Unfortunately, they've ended up with some poor wordings and they will take some claims. But yeah, I just don't think it's possible for a global systemic issue to be insured. It would wipe out the industry more or less overnight. Yeah, Warren, do you agree? I mean, that um, the PRA, for example, would never, if we had explicitly and affirmatively included pandemic and all of our business interruption limits, for example, then um, presumably we now we'll be talking about the Treasury bailing out the UK insurance industry, we would have an even worse image problem. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the clue is in what the government is doing across all other segments, which is they're stepping in and they're becoming the solution. Because in something this global, this economically ruinous, the only people equipped with deep enough pockets and the ability to, to borrow are the government. And therefore, um, that's not the insurance industry in any way copping out. That's just saying that things of this size are addressed globally and nationally and not by elements of the private sector. Peter, do you think there's um, any way we could get the private sector in in the way that we do with flood and the way that we have done with terrorism, where you, you, you use the state as the backstop and the, the, the industry is the first line uh, uh, of defence? And also, we use the obviously we use the uh, insurance industry's existing claims infrastructure, which of course doesn't exist, as we've seen uh, as uh, small companies are trying to claim furlough benefits and other things from uh, from the UK Treasury. They're actually trying to claim on on an infrastructure that doesn't currently exist. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, do you think? But so in in terms of some insurability, do you think? you know, a flood re or a pan, you know, we probably end up calling it pandemic re, but along the lines of pool re or flood re, could that work with a backstop? Could we get to something that is a meaningful enough solution for clients at a price they can afford? Yeah, well, look, we, pool re has got, what, six billion or so in, uh, um, in assets so far. This loss would have been, you know, hundreds of billions. So clearly without government backstop, then, then it wouldn't work. But it does occur to me that Paul Ree was designed and set up for events that actually, thank goodness, you know, don't, don't happen very often and, and hopefully will never happen again. Flood Ree is kind of a bit different because it's a, that's, a, that's a completely predictable event. And, you know, personal view, I think Flood Ree should be funded by just the levy on all policies, classic losses of the few borne by the many. So flood set to one side. But pandemics, terrorist acts, you know, global cyber attacks. I mean, yeah, that, that's going to be the next big thing, isn't it? What happened yeah. if somebody takes down the internet? You know, there's, 
those sorts of existential crises can only be funded by governments but actually the insurance industry could have been and in this crisis could have been a really good front front line if the government had said right rather than just setting up a loan scheme for businesses they'd just said to the insurers pay bi claims as if it were insured and then we will provide the money back to you as a backstop that would have been a great way for the industry to have actually responded you think then, then the money would have flown flowed quicker because you have that relationship yeah. I think that's right, Peter. I agree with that. And, and if, if you look at what has been challenging for the government in this crisis, it's not been the willingness to support or the provision of capital. It's been the delivery mechanism. Yeah. And I think the insurance industry could be a fantastic delivery mechanism for solutions to things like this, not in terms of taking the capital risk, but in terms of monitoring it when they're not happening, preparing for what would happen if they did happen, and then becoming the mechanism for relief when they do happen. Yeah, yeah Brendan, I'd like to sort of probe a bit more about you're saying that it, you don't think it is insurable. I mean, if it was something like a one in a hundred year event, and our very limited experience, if we say that the, you know, maybe it's a one in 25 or one in 50 year event, this kind of thing, would it be insurable then? Or, or is it, do you just think it's just too much to have industry as the first line of defense and then have the uh, government as the reinsurer of last resort? Well, in actual fact, you'd be asking the insurance industry to insure against the recession every time, wouldn't you? It's just, it's just not possible. It's, it's got such a dramatic effect on the global economy that the insurance sector is, is never designed for those kind of uh, losses. Uh, so I don't think it's possible. I think it might be possible to pool the pools, you know, so that the you know, pool reef, the flood pool, other pools could come together. But as Peter pointed out, they still wouldn't touch the sides on an issue like this. Um, so I think it's... So it wouldn't be a meaningful enough limit, limit, is what you're saying? Yeah. So we're going to have to agree to disagree on, on, on the insurability of, of pandemic risks there, uh, Brendan. Let's get back more into some more practical things. You mentioned there about claims. Obviously, there's ambiguity, in, particularly if there are communicable disease extensions. I've seen situations where we've got uh, named communicable disease extensions and this being mm. deemed to be an unnamed disease until it was, was named at some point in, in January when, of course, it was promptly excluded. Any claims that are definitely should be paid. Are they being paid? Are you finding that insurance companies are currently hoarding cash and or that those in claims departments would normally be authorised to pay claims up to a certain level are just not paying at the moment because they're waiting for authorisation because they don't want to be seen. It's more than their job's worth perhaps to let a lot of cash go out of the door without authorisation from above. Uh, Peter. So, I mean, it's almost after me next week. We've got quite a few. I spoke to our claims team this morning and yeah, we've got acceptance of claims from some insurers but as of today's date i haven't seen any money actually flow but i don't think that's uh, i don't think that's actually unexpected and in a week's time i'd like to think that next week we'll be seeing some reasonable amounts of money flowing on those few specific cases but you are talking maybe two or three percent of claims so yeah, it's, Warren, it's you're not a significant number seeing payments on account uh, yeah to, again still i'd just say a little bit too early it is relatively clear when there's a case for a claim. So they are being handled in what we perceive as being a fairly normal way, given the very small proportion of claims it applies to. So we're just a little bit early in, in the process for delivery of money. So we haven't seen that yet. And Brendan, you see much? Yeah, you see a, a range of behaviours. So we've got examples where people have responded, frankly, brilliantly, and have accepted liability. And I haven't seen cash change hands yet, but it will, because... There's been um, little or no argument. It's clear there's a liability and they're getting on with investigating the claims and, 
and trying to quantify the loss. In other cases where there's similar ambiguity, there's um, large-scale denial of liability and uh, you know, resourcing to many legal opinions to try and protect the balance sheet. So a, re- a range of uh, reactions from insurance providers. And what's your kind of report card on, on insurers in terms of their decision-making ability at this time? Are, are their claim staff empowered enough, do you feel? Yeah, I think, I think particularly when it's come from the top. You know, we've, we've had examples on binders, for instance, where the wording's been a little bit loose and the insurance company's taken legal opinion and said, yes, we, we, we're going to be liable, so get on with it. And then the road is clear then for the claims teams to get on with it. In other cases, there's a lot of ambiguity and they're not getting the leadership from the top. And frankly, that will we'll be resorting to legal action in some cases. But uh, there have been some, um, you know, I've had, I've had brilliant examples of superb responses. We had, a, we had a client who had an employee in Nigeria who had COVID symptoms, couldn't get home, was eventually put in a detention centre, and Aviva stepped up without recourse to the policy wording or the limits and repatriated that person on a private jet uh, within three days. I mean, that's to be applauded, absolutely brilliant. And with, with what Aviva did in the NHS by offering free breakdown cover to NHS workers and what have you, it's fantastic. They should, they should be uploaded from the rooftops for what they did. But unfortunately, I can't name the people who've, who've responded in a very different way. Because something that's been in the news has been, this has come over from the States, I think it was Allstate, did some return premiums for, for motor customers. So obviously, um, driving has, uh, the rate of driving has gone through the floor as the, as the lockdown has happened. Do you think that we should be doing more of that over here? Or do you think that, you know, would you as brokers be, you'd be pushing for that, that kind of, uh, you know, return premiums uh, to, to your clients for, for things that they're not using? So obviously, you've got big commercial fleets and other things. Warren? I want to make sure that it's real. If you look behind some of the, not particularly that one, but if you look at some of the headline comments, they look a little bit like an instalment holiday, but the premium for the year is unchanged. So there is a little, there is a little bit, there's a little slight irritation when markets will say that they're going to do things that we would expect to be entirely normal and put them on the hero list. And so I think we've got to be cognizant of, of what's the detail behind the headline. But we have seen and we have negotiated um, everything from holidays to extensions to reduce starting premium on a renewal with a review in 90 to 120 days time, hopefully when we're a bit further down the line on this. I think one of the big challenges we see coming down the track is probably that if people are projecting big impacts, whether it be on vehicle numbers, wage roll, turnover, that they, they, they might be going in at a, a substantially depressed level of premium at the start with a big adjustment at the end with the expectation that perhaps that adjustment will be a little bit more negotiable than, uh, than it probably would be if you're the insurer taking that view. So I think there's a, you know, look behind the headline is my advice because there's often behaving normally and calling it something better. Peter. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the example you quoted was obviously all states where they agreed to refund 15% of customers premiums um, as a result of the, of, the, of the lockdown reducing mileage. So yeah, that, felt obviously very very welcome it would be nice to see insurers taking a reasonably similar a reasonably similar view we're finding on a case-by-case basis exactly as warren and brendan said on a case-by-case basis insurers are being absolutely incredibly helpful and are suspending payments averting things you know changing usage part of the challenge on the vehicle side on the motor side is of course the government brought in these rules a few years back that vehicles either have to be insured or sawned and of course, if you so, 
and a lot of people are reluctant. I spoke to a customer the other day, he's got 160 vehicles parked in his yard. And I said, have you sawn them all? He said, can I be bothered to go onto DBLA website and put in 160 registration numbers to sawn them all, only to go back on again in three weeks' time? Can't you just get the insurers to give me a refund for the period? And we've got that negotiation ongoing. You kind of think those situations, you'd like to think insurers will be reasonable. And, and you know, so far, experiences that they, they have been. But as always, you know, they've, uh, they've started slowly, I think, in this crisis, and they've speeded up and got much better now. Just a live thought on this is that I wonder if you think that this is um, a really good advert for a lot of the insure tech, the kind of pairs you go, uh, particularly, in, which has uh, obviously uh, gained a certain amount of traction in motor and could easily, obviously, in motor fleet. Is it a good advert for that kind of thing? Because that's all done fairly automatically. The pay-as-you-go, um, black box or app-based insure tech, only pay by the miles that you drive. There's a case that those things you know, survive outside of these um, crises. And if you develop a solution based around being in crisis all the time, you'll, you, it won't be a perfect solution. But those things are definitely that's, that the sort of disruption that we've experienced a minor, a relatively, from a work day-to-day work perspective, a relatively minor interruption to our normal schedule from a, from, an in, from a day-to-day work perspective. And it is causing us in three weeks to be more nimble, more agile, more digital, more flexible, and solutions that tap into that are going to be universally relevant. Brendan, I'd like to actually, I'd like to break, go back into that, this point about the industry itself, about its own leadership. Do you think um, with situations like this, we've got all these these are situations that are common to all of our clients and all of us. Do you think we should be looking to our leadership to, you know, the ABI and the London market group and those sort of industry leadership bodies to, to, to be defining what best practice is, for example, at, at a renewal at this time, whether these, uh, or whether we should be extending or automatically renewing and automatically giving forbearance on premium payment conditions and all this kind of stuff and also exposure changes do you think we could have had something in place by now that could at least define best practice no actually i don't agree that the trade associations could have done a better job driving that the reality is we're in a competitive market environment you know insurance companies and brokers we've got to we've got to compete with each other to provide better services or a better response to our clients or better products and that's what's happening, you know, in difficult circumstances, people are stepping up and differentiating themselves. I mean, what you're describing is something like a socialist state where everybody provides exactly the same product and exactly the same terms. So I don't, I don't agree in that. I think where we can take a lesson from this is finally getting to grips with the PR that the sector gets as a whole. Um, I've, I've found, I'm a massive fan of Bieber, but I've found Bieber kind of missing in action in this. I've found the ABI entirely focused on protecting the balance sheets of the insurers and the image of the sector I think is suffering as a consequence and so the lesson is for all our trade associations and all all who lead businesses in the sector to make sure we do a better job of representing the great things that we do achieve for the country in our sector but we fail to communicate to the wider general public. There's something I'd ask Peter We've had big news this week of major UK insurers deciding not to pay out their final 2019 dividends to conserve capital. It's probably partially at the behest of the PRA Bank of England. Are you happy about that from a client perspective, from a a broker perspective? Because um, instead of benefiting shareholders, um, insurers are storing that cash in case it's needed by your customers. 
it's kind of all of that sort of stuff. I think there's it's playing to the populist view, isn't it? That oh, it's it's almost you know oh, everyone's agreeing to take pay cuts, everyone's agreeing to slash bonuses, everyone's agreeing to. It's kind of you almost have to be seen to be doing that. That that it's almost you know being seen to be doing the right thing. What everyone forgets, of course, is that everybody's pension fund relies on dividends from these insurance companies, and actually you know you are just robbing Peter to pay Paul to a degree. I think it's just they couldn't be seen to be paying a dividend. It would just be made out to be an awful thing to do, even though actually economically it might be the, the entirely appropriate thing to do. And there's another side to it that you know everyone's pensions and so on relies on on dividends. I think that's well said, Peter. I think I think you know it's 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 what you're seen to be doing at a time like this, which is sometimes pre- precedent over what you ought to be doing. And you know the narrative is big insurance company pays massive money to billionaires. And yeah. the reality is that the people reading that newspaper's pensions are somehow wrapped up and caught up in the condition of the market today. And the flow of you know, dividends and capital in and out of that market is actually critical to those things being long-term sustainable. So it's, it's, populism's a nasty thing, and it's, uh, it's certainly taken hold in that area. Okay, well, thank, thanks for that. I think that's very sensible. Yes, I, I, you wouldn't want to be a retired person trying to live off their savings when interest rates have gone back to zero again. And now even your dividend paying stocks for, in the FTSE 100 are now not paying dividends. What about things that we're worried about? Are you happy as brokers that insurers are going to be able to trade through all of this and are going to be solvent for your customers and come through for them? Is there any worry about that in your security committees and that kind of thing? Brendan? I have a slight concern. In, in most cases, it's not going to be an issue because most insurers are not going to be paying out a lot of claims. It's just it's not insured. In some cases, particularly where there's ambiguity in wordings, it may well be that longer term, those claims are proved to be correct. And it may give one or two insurers a challenge. I think the, the probably wider concern for, for me is capacity in the market generally. It may well be that insurers are providing cover on Certain binders, certain products at the moment decide to withdraw as a consequence of uh, the, the claims that are coming through. And um, so that will, that will cause uh, some brokers. But overall, it's not a concern for me. The, the, the major insurers that we look to to support us, I'm very confident they'll be fine. Are there any uh, particular classes that you think are going to be problematic? Obviously, we've seen, I've seen healthcare liability and some classes, some sectors of DNO, and other places, perhaps in employment liability and other sectors anyway. I was just just wondering, Warren, have you seen anything that, any classes where there's going to be capacity crunches or where you're expecting to and where you're working hard to find new capacity and access new capacity? I think your mind goes quite quickly to DNO and the actions and inactions and and decisions that um, the boards in an increasingly litigious world are are taking at a difficult time. As with the, the inevitable government inquiry that will follow every action taken every day during this crisis, and we'll be looking doing that in ways that we've done in the past, you know, we will find a thousand better ways of doing things. And at a government level, there's a sort of there's a comeuppance in an election, but at a board of director level, there's a there's a lawsuit that so often ensues. And I think DNO, you know, DNO is an interesting area where pricing capacity and people that have dabbled in dno i think going back to the specialist players will be an inevitability and my mind goes to a soft market dynamic which is the prevalence of general generalist sort of property casualty mgas who are just sort of have gathered premium up and are, are packaging blocks of premium into the market this will almost certainly result in a, a greater hardening of the market than we've seen in recent years. And what tends to go first in an environment like that is 
generic vanilla property casualty delegated authorities and MGAs because you can, as a specialist, as an underwriter, you a specialist in taking risks, you're more likely to retreat to the areas where there's rate and where you can control the outcomes. And I think that'll be a consequence I'm expecting to see. Peter, you've got any observations, particularly, you know, of problematic classes or places where you're expecting to see difficulties? Mm-hmm. Um, professional indemnity is probably my, my, one, of, one of my biggest concerns. It's, a, it's already been a, a particularly hard market this last year or so. Brokers PI, I do really worry about brokers PI because I think there will inevitably be some challenges made on brokers around these claims because people will go to lawyers when their insurers reject the claims and the lawyers will say, right, let's sue the underwriter. Oh, and by the way, let's join the broker in just in case they could have offered a policy that would have covered COVID-19. So you can see that being a problem. And I can imagine that brokers PI is going to be really hard during the rest of this year and into next year. Are there any exposures to premium finance and and things like that in terms of if we've got mass redundancies, we've got mass insolvencies at at customers. Is there any problems with uh, the premium finance that a lot of intermediaries are are using, Peter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there there are problems. It's uh, a... I have to say, first of all, I mean, the premium finance providers, you know, premium credit and close, you know, the two main ones have been fantastic so far. They've been really helpful to customers. So they've responded very quickly and very fairly, um, which is great. One of the slight challenges is, of course, they've been granting payment holidays. If those customers subsequently actually get into serious financial difficulty and go bust, a lot of the loans are on a recourse basis and the brokers will then have to refund their commission and they're taking some significant credit risk on. Clearly, you know, if that becomes a meaningful proportion of a broker's client base, if it was affecting 20, 30% of a broker's client base, and they, they, the broker was potentially on to, to rebate all of that commission, as well as suffering the loss of commission going forward, then that could be pretty serious for some brokers. It's um, actually, yeah. it's actually, you're right, Peter. And I think that it becomes selection against a little bit because it's often smaller brokers with less negotiating power that find themselves in recourse financing contract. And yeah. whereas there would be less, less of an impact at this table, our primary business is to support other brokers in the, in the transaction of their local business. And there's definitely a concern that closer to the ground in the industry, this is, this could be quite a serious problem. Yes. Has anybody got any feel for one, what sort of percentage of small commercial business is on uh, is finance, is premium is financed by, by a premium financing company? And then what, again, uh, what percentage of that is, is on a recourse basis, i.e. which could be lost um, if there's a default? My guesstimate is that typically around 30% of most brokers' premiums end up going through one of the premium finance houses. And you know, as much as 30 or 40% of that could be on a, on a full recourse basis. If you, if you do the maths, then you end up thinking that actually, if, there's, if 20% of those clients suffer severe financial difficulty, then you, know, you could be talking anything from 2 to 5% of a broker's revenue having to be refunded, as well as then also suffering that same, again, loss going forward. So you know, the, the, the cumulative impact could be 10, 15% of a broker's uh, profitability. Um, which for small brokers could be a you know, could be a significant issue. Well, probably leads me into a good question. I've got three um, consummate deal makers uh, on the call with me today. Uh, you know, you usually do two or three um, acquisitions before breakfast on any given day. Does this play into your hands as, as larger brokers are less exposed to this kind of thing, and you've got you still got access to capital at this time? Is it is it something we think? Well, um, I'm going to have more opportunity to buy, like perhaps relatively more distressed brokers at, at lower valuations. Uh, I don't know, Brendan. 
Yeah, actually, I, I wouldn't say they're distressed because insurance brokers are pretty lucky. I mean, they, people have got to buy what they sell. So they're luckier than most of the clients. What I'm seeing is uh, people a little bit war weary. And so we've had some incoming calls already about people that might want to sell the business. So I would imagine that, that when things settle down, there's going to be quite a pipeline. Yeah. So, same for you, Peter? Yeah, definitely. I think um, lots of small brokers, you know, the very smallest brokers, they do have the one advantage. Most of them don't carry much in the way of debt. Um, so actually a lot of them, although yeah, this will be a painful year, undoubtedly, you know, it, it won't be an existential problem for them. It's just be, you know, they'll be able to take less out this year than they were the previous year. Obviously, the government have just reduced the amount of uh, entrepreneurs' relief available to those brokers, which has been another disincentive. I think, as Brendan says, there will be a bunch that are just, you know, just had enough. It's all, it's all just a bit too difficult. I spoke to a broker yesterday. He runs a small operation, six staff, and he took the view that he, did, he didn't have the soft telephony and IT skills to sort out a proper working from home solution. So his solution is that he's diverted all the office lines to his mobile. I spoke to him at half past five and he was absolutely climbing the walls, having received, you know, 200 calls on his mobile during the course of the day. Well, you know, that, that's enough to put anybody off running their own business. So there are going to be some problems like that. But so far, it's been a continuing, ongoing stream of discussions with brokers. So the, the usual drivers to, to want to, to do deals. Another thing, you mentioned debt there, Peter. Obviously, another at the higher end, of, of, of the, generally on the, the serial acquirer end of broking, debt has always been a big part of that. Um, obviously, given what's happened in the in bond markets and the debt markets in this first quarter of this year, do you think that's going to uh, affect the, the, the sort of more debt-fueled acquisition strategies? And do you feel, is that going to change the competitive dynamic when you're out there bidding for, for these uh, assets? Possibly to to a small degree, but I do think that actually the there's a lots of these debt funds will that there will be a flight to safety and and brokers will come out of this as being the far less risky end of the spectrum. I'm sure Brendan, you'll probably see the same. I'd say the same as that, and also I, I you know even in the last ten days we've been talking to our uh, lenders, and the message is very firmly they will support us, so that they'll support existing deals, but. I think if anybody went to get fresh new debt right now, they would struggle. And clearly the lenders are trying to use their resources to, to support businesses that are far more stressed than we are. But the news was very, very strong. But yeah, you've got deals, we'll support you with them. And so you'd agree with Peter, Brendan, that, but though relatively speaking, of course, that repeat, that ability to keep generating repeat revenue of the brokers is, is still a really endearing attraction to, to debt finances. Yeah, both, both the private equity world and the, um, uh, the debt world consider insurance broking to be an annuity business. We're in a great place. That's good to hear. Right. Warren, I want to ask you, and for all, th- all three of you, obviously we're, we're in a situation where the UK government is uh, offering a furlough scheme. I can't remember what it's actually called, but uh, what has now become you know, popularly uh, known in the press as furloughing, where uh, the government is, is offering to fund 80% of, uh, of, of employees' salaries as well. They're effectively laid off temporarily due to the, to, to the crisis. As brokers, are, are you availing yourselves of this kind of facility or is it really all hands to the pump at the moment and, and do you not need to fellow stuff? And also, do you see broking as one of the professions that the government had intended to be the recipient of this kind of thing? Do you think fellowing is really for us? And at the moment, presume, I'm presuming that you don't really need to fellow because you've probably never been busier. 
I think that's 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 a fair comment. I mean, we we take the view we don't sort of make a judgment call on what anyone else is doing around furlough but our view has been that it's hard to reconcile the comment that we're in good shape people need what we buy and our businesses are very resilient we're very low level of indebtedness as well so we look at it as it wasn't really aimed at us we've got a lot of customers who is squarely aimed at and they are taking it quite rightly full advantage we monitor the situation very carefully that situation could change but my my current view is that we've got people whose actual roles are impacted by not being in the office and there are some people that have some very office bound roles and i understand you know people do that in our case we've taken no furlough steps at all we've redeployed staff that would have otherwise been sitting on their hands to do other tasks and there's plenty of that and our work volumes generally speaking have gone through the roof not just on the renewals uh, of business but also on midterm when clients are reaching out for support and help whether it be claims and, and, and underwriting so so our, our view has been Furlough is not for us at this time and, uh, you know, obviously reserve the right to look at it very carefully as time goes by, but we're in good shape. Peter? Yep. I mean, thus far, we haven't furloughed anybody, um, uh, but, but like Warren, we're looking at, we're just looking at those members of staff where you have somebody who physically cannot do their job and that they are, they are sitting at home literally twiddling their thumbs. Then if the income of the top line starts to be severely impacted by this crisis, then it's something that we may have to look at. Thus far, we haven't had to, but yeah, like Warren, we're keeping it under very close review. And Brendan? Well, I'm the odd one out because I furloughed some people this morning. I'm very much looking at this as if you have to uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best. If this goes on for a very short period of time, then I'll make sure everybody in our business doesn't lose a penny. And in fact, what I've said this morning is that we will pay everybody 100% of their salary until the end of May. And then I'll, then I'll have a rethink because the government scheme ends then. We'll think again about whether we continue to pay 100% or whether we continue furloughing. But we, we had a group of people, risk managers, who are generally in health and safety consulting. They can't access clients' premises. In fact, most of their clients have already been furloughed. So we faced a situation where we had a group of people who actually were telling us they should be furloughed. You know, they wanted clarity about it. And we're looking further at some other, some other groups of people who are just going to run out of work over the next few weeks. And as they do, we'll furlough them. But... You know, I'll make sure we're, 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 a, you know, we're a successful business. We're doing pretty well. You know, I'll make sure that we protect the lower paid people. We'll make sure that we protect as many jobs. But I think my job as a leader is also to make sure we protect the company in the longer term to make sure we keep as many people employed as possible. And that's why I took the action to furlough people now and uh, preserve cash. Great. Thanks so much, all three of you. I think it's been a really, really good discussion. And so unless there's anything else that you think, or maybe you've got a, a final parting shot before, before we part our ways and, and get back to work. I just say, you know, this industry is a relationship industry. It has been, it's its best parts of it. Even though we're friendly competitors out there in the world, I, I wish the, my uh, colleagues here good fortune in these difficult times. And Peter? Yeah, thanks, Warren. I think that it's, um, I'm, I'm really proud of the way that brokers generally have responded and the fact that we've, that we've been able to get all the, the homeworking sorted out just so quickly. I don't see us actually returning to entirely the way we were before post this crisis. So we are finding loads of positives in it. And as an industry, it would be, it would be great if we can, if the trade bodies can come up with some proposals to help us explain to the general public how this is a fundamental risk and how going forward it will be handled differently. That would be incredibly helpful as well. And Brendan? Well, a lot of people would think that we compete each other, uh, compete against each other every day, and of course we do, but we're also friends. 
And uh, I think some of these uh, some of these crises uh, create stronger bonds between us. And behind the scenes, some of us have been working together on some of the insurer issues. Uh, there's an awful lot goes on that people don't see where we don't compete against each other. We're trying to help each other. And I see that strengthening through this period. It's, it's been a lot of learning has come out of it as, as well as a bit of heartache. Well, great. Thanks all three of you. It's been a really, really good discussion and I wish you, you well. Stay safe, um, um, keep well and, uh, and keep uh, coming through for your customers. So thanks very, very much for all of that and we'll be speaking soon, uh, no doubt. Thanks, Mark. Thank you too. Thanks, Thank you. Mark. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Thanks once again for listening to this special COVID-19 episode, which was produced in association with Specialist Risk Group. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>